You're listening to The Interview, in-depth retailer interviews with inspirational people. This episode of The Retail Exchange is sponsored by NG Retail Summit 2020, bringing together senior retail decision makers from across North America. 27th to the 29th of April, Georgia, USA. Search NG Retail Summit 2020 to find out more. And I was looking for that one thing that I needed that particular day, and I, right. But then you walk in, and there are like it's just it seems that there are miles of eyes. Right, and the pride makes you look on your own for twenty minutes <laughs> yeah, before you then finally have to ask for assistance. Well, but also maybe you don't even find somebody to ask the right, question. Right. You're looking for people. There's nobody because the you place just is like die in the aisles. <laughs> I'll just start it this way. I think that not experimenting and not failing is way more costly for a company than actually trying and failing. And I always, um, my conversations with our teams is that um, we're going to try things. And you know what? At best, 80% of them are going to fail, 85% of them. But even if one of them works, I think we're moving forward. I think in the early ages of technology and touchscreens and, you know, in-store technology, um, there was a lot of failure. Hello, I'm Dave Evans, and welcome to the latest in the interview series from the Retail Exchange Podcast, as we bring you a special episode from the heart of New York City. I'm delighted to join the Retail Exchange team to bring insight and opinion from premier industry professionals and thought leaders. And today, I'm joined by Kambiz Hamati, Global Experiential Design Executive. Kambiz, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. A great way, I think, to start is to tell us about your career journey. I, I um, graduated from architecture school and uh, I studied graphic design and I went to film school as well. And, and the reason why I say all these things is I think from a very young age when I was a kid, I was interested in design and, and architecture and environments, but not necessarily big buildings or you know airports or structures. It was more about just really smaller details and and how uh, uh, I as a child experienced spaces and and uh, how I used to go inside stores and and the environments and traveled a lot with my parents and uh, my mother still laughs and she says that I, I I do what I used to do as a child but now I make a living out of it which <laughs> it's very funny but uh, yeah so that's um, it gives you a little bit of perspective on on on, on the way I see things. I, I don't see things just in terms of the architecture, but I see it in terms of all the layers that make a space successful. And I'm really interested in 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 what those spaces convey to people and how people then react to them and how people talk about them as they leave those spaces. There must have been, with that explanation, a one or few pivotal moments in childhood where you had this uh, tremendous experience in a place. Yeah. Can you recount what that was? I grew up in, in Switzerland and um, I, uh, I was mainly in boarding school when I was a child and then I came to the U.S. to go to architecture school. And um, as a child growing up in Europe, I think you're exposed to a lot of architecture and you're exposed to space. You're exposed to mountains and lakes and tunnels and, 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 and sort of historical buildings. 
And I remember going on trips and looking at archaeology, looking at at uh, churches, looking at uh, um, you know going to certain spaces that were old and and historical and meaningful, and and I think those were the ones that really affected me. If you go back, going back to religious buildings, you 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 know there was a concerted effort in all the details to you know um, convey a certain message and make you feel a certain way. And a lot of those things were, you know, obviously today are picked up by corporations and retailers, and the principles are the same. Humans are the same, right? It's just a matter of uh, what do you use it for? What story are you telling? Which elements are you using? Full disclosure, I I wrote and produced a documentary about the Cathedral of St. John the Divine (laughs) in New York City, and uh, certainly you could look at it from an architecture standpoint in materials and structure, but um, it is the emotion of the experience you have within these spaces that is the true story, I think, of architecture. So how do those theories translate to retail? Well, I think that, um, again, it's just a matter of... um, um, thinking of what the challenge is and thinking what you're trying to do and, and what the message is and how do you convey that. Um, you know, we know, um, even if we go back to churches, for example, we know that the, the, the sort of the benches and the seating was always done in a way that was very uncomfortable so people wouldn't fall asleep, right? Um, the same principles were used, for example, in McDonald's. So, you know, McDonald's in the past, the chairs were attached to the ground because they wanted people to come in and out quickly and leave. Going back to your original question, one of the places I, I think I learned um, a lot was in my experience working at Starbucks, because Starbucks is are you know that whole notion of third place, and then all Starbucks are different, and Starbucks is depending on where they are located, have a different type of customer and a different type of purpose, and I think Starbucks is very good at at um, having a variety of different types of furniture and different types of. Uh, for different times and different people. And we all know when we go to a coffee shop, depending on what we're doing, we ask ourselves questions. Are we staying here five minutes? Are we staying here in half an hour? Are we staying longer? And depending on that, we are trying to look for that particular chair that would work for that amount of time, right? If we're staying longer, we want to try to get a couch. If we're staying less, we'll, oh, we'll take the stool. So there's a lot of those kind of thinking, I think, that... Um, uh, can be applied to all kinds of projects, depending on what the project is. When you're heading it all, when you're a global head of design, and you're think, and we're we're discussing stools and chairs, right? The minutia yeah. and how important it is. How difficult is it to get this umbrella approach and make all the right choices and make everyone see why these choices make sense, and then guide your team. Uh, to executing on those choices, <laughs> it's it's pretty complicated, and you know that's and I know that's your question implies that um, it's it's complicated, and I, and I and I tell you why it's complicated is because it's not anymore about um, just figuring out a design and just reproducing the same over and over again as it used to be in retail. People are expecting different types of experiences, and they're expecting more localization. And they're expecting to be surprised and delighted. Um, at the same time, when you're working for a company like a Verizon or a Starbucks or Nike or of the worlds, you um, you have multiple locations and you have systems. 
So it's hard. And then when you have thousands of stores. I mean, right? we talk about Starbucks. What is the number there? We're talking tens, over, of, tens of thousands? Well, right now, I believe there are over 30,000 stores. All right. That's right? a tremendous <laughs> amount of stores. And you're talking about them being customized at a location yeah. level. Yeah. So that's, you know, and I can tell you that uh, at Starbucks, what we did and, and what I've tried to do in, uh, in all the other companies I've worked at is you need to set up processes and systems and you need to make decisions you need to and you know it starts with segmentation you segment you know you you figure out internally at, at the company what are the type of stores that you have what are, and then for each one of the formats what are the attributes right it's kind of like you do this in the way I work is I, I like to put everything on a whiteboard, but then ultimately I like I am that. also a tremendous <laughs> fan of whiteboards. So much can be accomplished on them. But the whiteboard haters will tell you otherwise. They think it's silly, but I, I'm with uh, you, Kembees. I love the whiteboard. Every time I, I we have a meeting and I pick up the, I walk towards the whiteboard, everybody on my team goes, oh, here we go again. <laughs> but... Um, but I think if you do that, and and I'm I'm a firm believer in one pagers as opposed to like, you know, decks that are pages and pages. So you know, I think if you segment your your stores, because again, and this is something also new in retail, because you have to be always where your customers are, you can't just have one format, right? Because you want to be where your customer is, and sometimes that's going to be a tiny store. Sometimes it's an express store. Sometimes it's a bigger store. Some it depends on where you are, how much time they have, what are they doing, right? So because of that, you need multiple formats. And I think then, when in terms of localization, is the same thing. Uh, you may have smaller formats that are not localized really because they're you know small touch points where you do certain services or certain products for your customers, and then you may have bigger experiences, bigger brand experiences, so to speak where you actually have more space, more money, more resources, and you can tell a bigger story, right? I think what's important is that no matter what the format is and no matter where it is, there's always a DNA of the brand that is present, but then there is that layer of localization. Um, the reason why I got the, the job at Starbucks was at the time, um, the company wanted to move away from cookie cutter type of stores to more localized stores and more, um, you know, different stores for different markets. And then when you start to think globally like that, then you start to think about how the stores operate in different countries or different markets. And then you start to think, what is the purpose? Like, how do these people experience it? Cultures are different. Cultures are different. I mean, we, we're all human, but cultures are a serious difference between us. And then how do you go about adapting what works in one country for another country? Exactly. And for example, what we did um, at Nike, which was, I think, uh, we... Nike used to do the same store everywhere. And then, you know, we sort of moved away from that. So how do you do that? How do you show that... You're a company that, of course, everybody knows that Nike is American. Of course, everybody knows about that. And everybody likes that when you think globally. But at the same time, how do you say that you're Nike, you're American, you have this product, but you also are respectful of the local cultures, the local sport teams, the local you know, uh, preferences? Um, and you start to do that, and you start to do it. There are multiple ways and multiple layers. Um, 
one of the examples I always liked is that when um, we used to do stores in in the U.S. and we used to um, in certain locations, in older locations, we had like we would expose bricks, and bricks were obviously red and you know reddish, and they're the bricks that we see in our old industrial sort of I have vernacular. A, I have right? a relatively new Nike store by my house that's almost all exposed brick because that's the building it went into. There we go. And it was one of their first um, community stores. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Yeah, so then you expose, and it's there, and it's great. And it makes sense because it makes sense to you um, because you recognize that brick, right? But then um, we did research in China, and there is no red brick in China because they didn't have red bricks. So the bricks in China are gray, we realized that if we do the red brick, it's not going to really relate to a Chinese teenager because they haven't seen it. So then we use gray brick in our stores. And, you know, lots of people are going to come and never really understand that. But when you start to do a lot of little details like this, and the details start to add up. How do you avoid the red brick mistake? I'm sure you spent countless nights sitting up in the middle of the night, waking from sleep saying, oh, no, the bricks were red. They shouldn't be red. What, how do you foretell uh, the forethought that goes into um, making so many small decisions right out of the gate? And how often maybe do you make a few wrong decisions and have to correct them later? Oh, you always make a lot of wrong decisions. (laughs) Um, And then you learn from them and you move forward. I think, um, but, you know, in the case of um, even my latest work at Foot Locker, or um, um, we opened, for example, a store on 181st Street here in New York. What we started with is we started to really do research on that neighborhood. Um, you know, it's Washington Heights, it's 181st Street, it's, it's Manhattan, but, you know, up there. And there's a very strong community. There's a Dominican community. There is like, a, it's a very sneaker, uh, huge sneaker, you know, culture. Um, so before we even started to look at the space, we started to really think and research what is there learn about the the people and learn about the the culture. And then what we did is then, you know, then you start with the architecture. And when we think in terms of giving back to the community, I think the way we start is the first thing is the architecture. I truly believe that, and maybe just because I'm an architect, (laughs) that that it's important to, um, to respect the architecture. So you come to a community, you're a store, you're a company, you're a big, you know, big company and you have resources. In the old era of retail, you know, the idea was that all the facades would look the same and you would slap the same material everywhere in, you know, in the country, right? And and what do the remnants of that look like today? Right, exactly. They stick out like a sore thumb. Exactly. But in this case, for example, in this particular case, um, you know, what we did is we, no, we took out all of the layers that was added to the building and then we restored the facade. It was a terracotta, beautiful facade. You know, there was a name on top. It used to be a general store. We kept the name on top and we replaced the windows. And so anyway, we were very respectful of the architecture. So you start with that. Um, and then we wanted to localize. So then we hired a local design, um, artist who was born there, raised there, works there to come and create, you know, specific murals for the space. I'm sure there's also a calculation for authenticity, too. You don't want to, as a company, seem like you're trying too hard. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I always um Because the consumer is really perceptive to that. 
Absolutely, especially I think uh, when you think of uh, Gen Z and and our customers, uh, they see BS, you know, very quickly. If you're a big corporation, you just have to be careful in terms of communicating. You have to be sensitive um, and do it in a way that is, you know, um, more discreet, I believe. I think the era of communication of sort of the companies um, yelling at you, so to speak, and a one-way communication is done. I think now we live in a in a two-way communication where the customers and the people who experience the spaces, they also obviously can communicate very easily because of all the social media and everything, right? So it's not just marketing in one way, it's having more conversation with your customers. And when you think about it in those terms, then it becomes a different way of, of marketing and um, reaching to you know, people. Hear more from Footlocker at the upcoming NG Retail Summit 2020, April 27th to the 29th in Georgia, Atlanta. Featuring Footlocker Global Director of Retail Concept and Design and other speakers from leading US retail brands. Designed exclusively for C-suite retail leaders across North America. The small gathering offers a unique opportunity to network with peers and discuss the big challenges in retail and how to best tackle them. To find out more, search NG Retail Summit 2020. I think we need to break down experience. Where is the authenticity in experience nowadays? I'm a true believer of letting the product speak and... Um, and less clutter. I, I believe that if you want to be experiential, you have to, um, there's a couple of things to look at. I think one thing is that you have to make sure that um, your stores and the way the product is presented, whatever story you're telling in the store matches the same story that you're telling on the website and on the app. Because if you really think about it, the store is not just the only place where people shop. Right, um, I think that you you um, often um, the shopping starts really online, and and what happens is that you you um, the, your customer looks at the website. They may look uh, they may be in their PJs at home on their couch looking at an iPad, and they see things and they read things and they see products and there's a certain amount of storytelling. Um, and also online, there's an ease of shopping. And then when you come to the store, sadly, that doesn't really happen. A couple of months ago, I went to uh, one of these big um, um, stores and I was looking for that one thing that I needed that particular day. And I, right? But then you walk in and there are like, it's just, it seems that there are miles of aisles. Right. And the pride makes How do you, you find look, this? the pride makes you look on your own for 20 minutes <laughs> yeah, before you then, then finally have to ask for assistance. Well, but also maybe you don't even find somebody to ask the right, question. Right. You're looking for people, there's nobody because the you place just is like. die in the aisles. <laughs> they find you a hundred years later. And then you, then I just realized, I thought, well, this is why. I, you know, and I hadn't been in one of the stores for such a long time. And I said, well, this is what, because it takes me, not only I have to get in my car and drive and park the car and get into this place. And and now I have to find it physically. And then I have to go and pay for it. it just the experience is not that great, right? And I think um, when we think in terms of um, retail, um, I, I, you know, 
people sometimes ask, you know, what is the best way to start, you know, when you're looking at the physical um, space, what is the first thing you can impact? And sometimes I think the first thing you can impact really is try to organize it better, make it easier to find, make it more customer friendly. You Perhaps know, shrink it in some situations. Shrink it in some cases, maybe focus on things that you sell more, maybe shrink it, but then go deep you know, maybe shrink it, but then have, you know, places where you can actually connect to online to find other colors, other sizes or other things. There are ways to do it. Um, and those are just kind of the first steps, I think, that one has to take. Because again, people have no, um, what is the attention span? I think of a Gen Z, I think it's seven seconds. I think it's beyond seven seconds. It's like, it. they just lose Right, as yeah, someone that also went to film school, we used to at least know we had 10 pages after the audience, <laughs> and now it's seven seconds. Does flagship come with a loss factor, essentially, for branding and marketing purposes? Yeah, a lot of companies do that. A lot of companies have the flagships that don't make money and you know, and, and just really are just for the brand purposes. Uh, and then they make their money either uh, at the mall or in their outlets, right? Um, I personally believe that every store should make money. I'm a big uh, proponent of that, and I think that one of those old uh, school profit guys. Yeah, I'm a, you know, and it's odd. I know I'm a designer, and it's very odd, but <laughs> but I I personally believe as a as a store designer, as an experienced designer, if the store doesn't make money, I then I've haven't done my job. I think that retail design is at the intersection of business and art. Um, it's not just an art, right? So I think that it's really very important. And uh, and I, uh, uh, we, um, again, if I go back to my experience, uh, my recent experience with Food Locker, we opened some big stores. Uh, they're much bigger than the typical mall stores that Food Locker had. They're like 15,000 square feet in some instances. And actually, um, business is really good. And it's um, and even though we have activation areas, we have, you know, we've created eclectic lounges where people can hang out. We have stadium seating with places where people can plug their devices. We want, you know, we look at those stores as being a, a place where you would meet a friend. You know, you want to meet at this place. Think about it. Where would you meet? There is really no place. You can't. It's there's no place to sit. There's no place to be comfortable. Um, you know, the the store we have a store in Detroit is really a meeting place. You can go and and sit there and 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 wait for your friend. Um, we had a, we did three power stores, what we call power stores at uh, Foot Locker, um, and one is in Philadelphia, one is in Detroit, and one is in New York uh, that I mentioned before. But the one in Philadelphia, which is very interesting, is uh, actually and something that is a byproduct of our of our design is that uh, in the afternoons is packed with kids doing their homework. Only sneakerhead kids, or all kinds of kids? Uh, it's, all, it's well, I'm, well, <laughs> it's probably sneakerhead <laughs> kids, but it's um, in a in a strange way, it's become kind of like that third place that Starbucks talks about. It's a place between school and home. It's a place where they feel comfortable. It's a place where they feel safe. Uh, in certain communities, there is no space like that for the kids. And, you know, if kids are um, uh, attracted to the product, if kids feel comfortable in the space, if they like the music that is played, and if that makes them hang out and do their homework, 
That's great. It's a beautiful thing. It's it's a great. It's another and, way and, to give back to the community, really. And kids go through sneakers very quickly as those feet grow. And, and why, <laughs> why would they go somewhere else to buy their sneakers after all that? And it's good business. I, I truly believe that um, creating experiential spaces, giving back to the community, organizing events where you uh, identify certain things that the community needs and you provide that is not only good for the community and it's good for the company, but it's also good business. Experiments can fail. Absolutely. Tell me about some failures you've had. <laughs> we we had a lot of. Well, I can tell you. Um, we learn from the failures, right? You so. learn from. I, I, you know, I'll just start it this way. I think that not experimenting and not failing is way more costly for a company than actually trying and failing. And I always um, my conversations with our teams is that um, we're going to try things, and you know what? At best. 80% of them are going to fail, 85% of them. But even if one of them works, I think it, we're moving forward. But um, I think in the early ages of technology and touchscreens and you know in-store technology, um, there was a lot of failure. And I truly believe right now um, that spending money on technology in stores is is not a good idea. because risk, even, risk, too much risk? Yeah, but, but also you spend a lot of money and then you, by the time you, by the time you plan it, and then you open the store. Already, by the time you open the store, that, that technology is obsolete, sort of. And then you have to maintain it, so that way you have to create more content for it, right? Which is costly. And then at the end of the day, here's the thing: you you have people that are willingly queuing up to spend a thousand dollars and buy their device and update it every couple of years, and they do it already on their own. So I truly believe in leveraging mobile and people's own devices rather than try to spend all this tremendous money in the store. So this brings up an interesting point. So not only from a technology standpoint, but even from a, dis a design standpoint, there's always the risk of trends disappearing quickly. Yeah. How do you stay nimble from a design standpoint? Yeah, so from a design standpoint, I think um, this goes back to, again, with the function of the retail space right now. The stores of the future have to be super flexible. One has to think of the fixture system of the, st of the store um, as an, um, sort of an art museum, as an exhibition, right? Because when you're in a museum, you don't really, exhibitions change. Right, if you're in a gallery, and so that's the way I look at it. I, I look at the fixture system to be really disappear. The focus to be on the. If you come to the store and you're, let's say, it's an apparel store, and you see the table as I was just saying, the, what we're selling, I think that's not, that's not optimal. That's that's a failure. Um, the easier it is to uh, change them, the easier it is to uh, implement them. Because it's faster to implement, right? And you and you you end up saving a lot of money. Um, the worst you can I see a lot of stores are like that right now, and they're still being built. Sadly, where the people put walls and people build different environments, and then how do you change that? Now you want to change that? You have to spend three hundred thousand dollars to remove the wall, change the air conditioning, change the lights, and and I know we're going into the all the nitty gritty of the construction, but. As a designer, as a retail designer, you have to be aware of these things. When it comes to the experience, so we spoke pretty much about the, how to stay modular with fixtures mm -hmm. for merchandise. But what about 
keeping things modular for experience. Same thing. Absolutely. Same thing. We start with, um, you know... Especially in a flagship scenario, I would think. Absolutely, yeah. Again, the way I look at it, um, f- um, the activation or experiential elements should really be designed like a soundstage, like a TV studio. You have stuff in the ceiling. You can bring electrical from the ceiling anytime. You can change the lights. You can drop things. You can hang things. That's what the new generation likes. They want to take pictures of themselves. They want to change things. They, they get bored, right? So if you think about it in terms of a soundstage, of a, of a, of a, of a set that you can change quickly, that's, that, that is the, the best way to look at it. Which brings us to perhaps my final questions for you. And that revolves around your history in, in film, both in studies and in production designing uh, yeah. films. The storytelling that you talk about so often. Yeah. How do you execute storytelling for retail brands from a design standpoint? Yeah, so every, every brand is different because every brand has a different uh, story and a different customer and a different uh, product. Um, it, um, it's very funny when, uh, everybody says that, Hey, I want to be the Apple store of whatever, you know, people, <laughs> all the clients and all the companies want to emulate the Apple store. And really the Apple store is very unique because the Apple store, Apple designs their own product and they control it. And by the way, there are not that many of them. And, you know, so and it's a specific customer it's, uh, for a specific experience. Totally. And so you have people that are like multi-brand and they say, we want to be like Apple Store. I'm, How is that possible? They're you know, selling like, jeans. <laughs> or, or multiple different brands, right? right. Um, the way I look at it is that every um, company or every project has certain specific um, sort of criterias. And I think the first thing you do is you get yourself involved, you you understand, you go in the store, you look at the customers, how they shop. And then based on that, then you create a sort of a script for your store. And the script is really based on certain things. Um, you know, it's it's based on the history of the store. And, and you, you look at the history and you extract all the things that are good and things that are valuable. And then Often what happens with companies, if they're legacy companies, is that they started with amazing ideas and then through the years, they just, people added things to them that are just not really, you know, um, they're not going with the original. Like the stuff added to the Art Deco building in Washington Heights. <laughs> exactly. You got to peel that away. You peel it away. Exactly. So I think you identify what was important in the heritage of the, I, I find always a good source of inspiration in the heritage of the company. Even companies that are right now left and right going out of business, at some point they had some great ideas. You know, you can you can look at the Sears catalog. You can use there are so many things that were great in some of these companies. You know, and uh, they just I I believe they sort of forgot a little bit. You know, those original ideas. So if you get back to those original ideas and then then take that as a source of inspiration and then add again all the layers of you know what is happening today and the technology and how people shop and 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 everything else on top of it i think is important the other thing that is important for me as well is that you know when we talk about technology everybody talks about technology that is uh, customer facing um but what's important is technology also that is in the back of house um if you empower your associates with the right technology you give them the right tools then they have more time 
and they can be more efficient to service your customer. Um, so it's not all about the, 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 the sort of shiny object in the sales floor. It's really t technology. And people sometimes ask me, well, how do you start? Do you start with, uh, hey, you're going to put like a screen on this floor? And no. Maybe you should start by providing technology to your associates so they don't spend, you know, 15 minutes finding that thing in the back of house when they have the information in the palm of their hands that they can share with their customers. And doing that, you're actually improving service and you have them spend more time and, 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 and be more helpful. And, and then you can, at the same time, in, you know, improve the environment. Do, and then there's simple things you do, the lighting, things people forget. You have to have good lighting. You have to have the, there's certain principles of a space that haven't changed, but a lot of retailers forgot because um, they had limited budgets and they were pressured to do something, and they took those limited budgets and then used it on technology that then became obsolete right away. Because at the end of the day, if you don't improve the customer experience, what are you doing? We've spoken so much about what's next for retail. What's next for Kambiz Hamrati? <laughs> what are you excited to do in this new role? I think in the new role, I'm excited to actually connect the dots. I think I look at everything through the lens of design because that's my background. And I think every for me, every problem has a design solution. And I think when you study architecture, you're a problem solver by nature. We're all lucky that um, design is is has become more of part of the process than it used to be. When I graduated from school, um, nobody cared about design. The corporations didn't care about design. It was just an afterthought. It was more, you know, the computers all look the same. It's it just, it wasn't, there was no focus like that. And to a certain amount, the credit goes to Apple and companies like Nike who, who, who show that design can differentiate and can make you a better company. And I think now people realize that. And I think the, it's a good time to be a designer. It's a good time to be an experienced designer. Um, and uh, so I feel very fortunate. Well, we're excited for the future of retail and your next chapter. Thank you so much. Ken Bees, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange Podcast, sponsored by NG Retail Summit 2020, 27th to the 29th of April, Georgia, USA. Stay up to date with new podcast episodes by subscribing online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter, hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.